Welcome to the 381st episode of the Reading and Writing Podcast. Stay tuned for my interview with author Diane Cook, author of the new novel, The New Wilderness. And stay tuned after the interview for a brief excerpt from the audiobook of The New Wilderness. And just one quick programming note, this interview was originally recorded last summer, in the summer of 2020. The Reading and Writing Podcast is brought to you by Libro.fm. Libro.fm lets you purchase audiobooks directly from your favorite local bookstore. You can pick from more than 185,000 audiobooks, including bestsellers and recommendations from booksellers. You'll get the same audiobooks at the same price as the largest audiobook company out there, but you'll be part of a different story one that supports your local community and your local bookstore. If you're new to audiobooks, they're the perfect way to get more books into your busy life. You can listen during your commute, while doing chores, walking the dog, or just relaxing at home. All you need is a smartphone and the free Libro.fm app. If you already love audiobooks and don't know what to listen to next, check out recommendations and curated lists from people who know audiobooks best, your local bookseller. Here's your special offer from the Reading and Writing Podcast. Get two audiobooks for the price of one today with your first month of membership with the code RWPODCAST at checkout. This offer is only valid for new members in Canada and the U.S., Check out Libro.fm today. Welcome back to the Reading and Writing Podcast. My guest today is Diane Cook, author of the debut novel, The New Wilderness. Cook's novel is receiving acclaim, including being listed as one of Elle magazine's 30 most anticipated books of the summer and BuzzFeed News' most anticipated books of 2020. Diane, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thanks for having me. If someone listening hasn't heard about your debut novel, The New Wilderness, yet, how would you describe the novel? I used to tell people when I was working on it and didn't want to say too much, I used to tell people that the book takes place in a future America where there's only one wilderness area left, and the book follows a group of people who gets to live in that place. And that's still true of the book, but it's become more complex since then. And there's a group of people who live in this wilderness area and they live as nomadic hunter gatherers as a, an experiment to see how humans interact with nature, because in a future world with only one wilderness area left, people interacting with nature almost never happens anymore. And this group of people live in the wilderness because the cities that they usually inhabit are so polluted and overcrowded, and they're trying to have a better life, and in some cases actually survive by leaving the city and going to the wilderness. And the story mainly follows a mother and her young daughter who have fled the city for the wilderness for this experiment in order to actually save the daughter's life because she's so ill she from the smog and the pollution in the city. And do you remember the original idea or impetus that led you to write The New Wilderness? 
Yeah, I remember um, I have a book of short stories that I published uh, a few years ago. And when I was working on those, I remember that I had this idea, this idea for the premise where there's this one giant swath of land that's a wilderness area that's been rewilded from a former life of like being land that's used in the way that land gets used as places where people live and little towns and, and buildings. And I had this idea for this premise that there's this one place left and that a group of people ends up living there and they have to live there in this nomadic hunter-gatherer way because it's a wilderness area and a wilderness area is number one rule is to leave no trace so they can't have impact on the land and that's where the that's where everything started for me with that idea and I'd had the idea I think because I'd been introduced to the idea of environmental mitigation which is if you want to develop one parcel of land you have to rewild another parcel of land you have to mitigate the impact that you're going to have on one into the world by rewilding another parcel of land. And I just had this, I, I took that to its farthest, most extreme conclusion where you could have just basically an entire state's worth of land environmentally mitigated to become a, a wilderness again. And that's where the idea came from. And then, and that idea, that kind of origin element like disappeared from the novel after a while, because what, I ended up being most interested in were the characters that I had created in order to, I had created to inhabit this place. So that's really what the book is more about is are the people there and what it is like to be a human kind of becoming more in touch with their, the side of all of us that's more animal. Sure. You mentioned your short story collection. Did this start out originally as a short story in your mind or did it grow into a novel? Yeah, it's funny. It actually, the <laughs> when I had the very first thought of it, I thought, oh, this is like a short, which is like a very short story, like a thousand words. It's just its own little project. Like it was just going to be this tiny little idea in a very short story. And then I started thinking about it and in the course of not even not even in an hour <laughs> of thinking about it and just what could this be like and oh maybe this could happen and oh this could be interesting it turned I suddenly realized oh this isn't a short of a thousand words it's a novel of a hundred thousand words <laughs> and, then, <laughs> and that was that's where it all started. <laughs> And I'm curious about your writing process. Did you write this more organically in terms of kind of building on this idea? Or do you sit down and plot extensively? What's that process like for you? I, when I wrote short stories, I never outlined or did anything like that. They were really thought experiments that kept building on themselves. But with the novel, and I'd never written a novel before. So with the novel, it's just such a big project that I couldn't approach it the way I approach stories. I tried to keep it like that pure experience that I always had with stories, but uh, it just was impossible and frustrating. So I ended up at the very beginning when I first had the idea, I had luckily I had to spend a couple of days taking copious notes and writing little 
little moments of scenes here and there and like describing characters that I could imagine being there and describing different tensions and just getting all the ideas down that I had. And then I put it aside for a while because I was writing this book of short stories, like I mentioned, and I was really invested in them. I really loved them. and I wanted to keep going. And I knew that this novel, now that I had all those ideas down, was going to be alive for me when I went back to it. So when I went back to it and I started trying to write it in a more organic way, but I just found I couldn't. So I went back to those notes and really laid out everything that I thought needed to happen in the book. Not like a very strict outline and not a hugely descriptive outline, but just just enough beats so that I would know I'd always have a direction I was going and I'd always have a project I could work on if I sat down to work that day and I needed like to start a new scene. I would know I have to write this scene or I have to write, they have to go on this walk and they have to interact with this person because I would know that needed to happen. So it was my first foray into really giving myself goals and outlines and that kind of thing for the project. Sure. And, and are you working on another novel now? No, I haven't jumped back into anything new yet. <laughs> I'm like a little, I'm still a little attached to the novel. Like I think I'm still living in it a little bit because I like worked on it for five years more or less. And, and I'm still really with those characters. So I haven't jumped into anything. And I'm just starting now to have like bubblings of ideas. Sure. Your book deals with pollution and climate change. And given the United States current reaction to what is a minor inconsequential behavior change, mainly putting a mask on when leaving your house, I can't even fathom how we will tackle large scale behavior changes needed to address climate change. I'm curious, given some of the research that you probably did for this book, do you have much optimism when you think about climate change and specifically how we might need to change our behavior, whether it's giving up cars completely or every family goes down to one car? That's just one example. Mm -hmm. I'm wondering if you have any kind of optimism or thoughts about that. I think I, in thinking about the book, I think I... In thinking about the book and, and in writing a speculative work where I'm imagining, I'm like taking our current situation and pushing it into the future as far as I think it can go. Yeah, like I wrote it from a place of thinking there's not much we can do to avoid what's coming. And I don't think that we're going to do it even if we could, even if we had the option and even if we could roll things back and really and really arrest things right now, I don't think that we are capable of it. So in thinking about and writing a speculative book, I just automatically went to the place of where everything has come to fruition with climate change and this is where we are. So in the book that I like reference so the book is, but the book is more about like life after that. It's not like the, all the calamitous storms that happen and all of the catastrophe that might be coming in small, big and small ways, but it's the aftermath. It's the, what does life look like once all of that has taken place and it's a new normal and what does the new normal look like? And that's what the 
book takes on. But, and in thinking about a future world where there's a new normal, I think you also have to think of what it's, what is it like to live in that place? And where do you find the hope? And where do you find the desire to carry on? And where do you find where people's joy will be? And so that becomes more of the project of the book. But I think definitely in writing it, I just thought, I don't know that there's much that we can do to stop this. And maybe the thought, then the thought project became, well, what does it look like afterwards? Sure. So what are your earliest memories of reading in books? Oh, gosh. Weirdly, my earliest memory is my children's Bible. And I'm, I say weirdly just because I'm not religious anymore. And my mom, who she passed away a long time ago, but she also wasn't religious in the end. But yet my earliest memories of are of us looking at the children's Bible together in my room. And I just, I don't know why I just loved it so much, the illustrations, and it was just this such a special book to me. And that time with her looking at it and even time alone I had with it was really special to me. They're great stories, <laughs> and what, however you feel about them. But yeah, it's just such a vivid, vibrant book in my mind. And when did you start writing stories and then later this novel? I started writing fiction in college. Like I took creative writing courses in college and really loved it. I don't, no, I guess I was taking those courses with an eye toward being a writer, but I don't think I really understood that you could be a writer in the world. It wasn't like a thing people like me did. I was just like some girl who grew up in the suburbs. I didn't have a very remarkable life at all. But without the ones like you who work tirelessly to keep things running, everything would suddenly stop. Hospitals, factories, schools, and power plants, they all depend on you. No matter the weather, emergency, or time of day, you're the ones who get it done. At Granger, we're here for you with professional-grade industrial supplies. Count on real-time product availability and fast delivery. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. But I knew I really enjoyed reading I loved fiction, I loved reading it, and I loved writing it too. And after college, I definitely went the more pragmatic path and thought, no one's an actual writer. <laughs> you can't make a living at this. and you, It's not something people actually do. I'll be an editor. I'll work in some other form of writing. And that's what I did. I worked in radio and nonfiction journalism for maybe about 10 years. And then I just kind of got... I guess after working with writers who were actually working and making a living and doing what they loved, I realized that maybe I should try that too and not give up on writing, on being a writer before I even try it. So I decided to leave my job and go back to grad school and just as more to give myself time to write than to really learn something. And then I started writing these short stories, which became my first book, and then started writing this novel. And so when you went back to college, was that for an MFA program? An MFA program. And, and what was that experience like for you? 
It was really great. What had happened to me in my professional life, I well, do you know the radio show This American Life? Yes. Yes, I'm familiar with it. So I worked there. And it's a really great show for storytelling. It's a really great show for lots of reasons. But it also has a very particular voice. And as someone who worked for the show, I became really... Like, it, I... Be, the voice of the show became my voice as a writer. And what was really great about grad school is that I could go to grad school and I could separate myself from that former life and that need to, to sound like the show that I was working for. And I could rediscover the voice that I write with when I don't work for this American life. So I spent grad school really using the the good things that I'd learned in my previous job and then washing away the stuff that I didn't need in order to become a writer on my own terms. So I really was working on what's my voice if I'm not writing for the radio show and how do I think about these ideas if I'm not having to think about them for my job. And so grad school for me was like a really wonderful time to get to rediscover who I was as a writer and not just who I was as this person who helped other people write for the radio show. Well, with the writing you've done to date, your short stories and now your debut novel, what writing advice would you offer for someone listening who is writing their own story or novel? Um, I would say, take your time. (laughs) There's no rush. Do what you want to do, not what you think you should do and play. And I say play because I think a lot of times writing, especially a long project can become a slog, even if you love doing it. It's just like a lot of things need to get done in something that takes place over two to 300 pages or more. And that if you don't give yourself time to play, and especially especially if you're working from an outline where everything or like everything, what needs to happen and you're just like filling in blanks, it can feel like at times. If you don't give yourself room to play, then you lose the spark of what made you want to write it in the first place. And I feel like you can sense that in the work itself when you read it back to yourself. So I would say, take your time. There's no rush. Do what you want and play. What novels or nonfiction books have you read recently that you enjoyed? I have... Novels and nonfiction. I have a book I really loved um, that came out in March called Temporary by the writer Hilary Leichter. And it's this, it's also like a little speculative or dystopian, but it's about the nature of work and the gig economy. And it's about a woman who is a temporary. That's what the, the title refers to her job. She's a temp. And instead of just having jobs that we might think attempt does like in an office or filling in answering phones or 
filling out paperwork. Her, she does those jobs, but she also does like more and more increasingly absurd jobs as the book goes on, like working on a pirate ship or like being an assassin's assistant or being a barnacle, like on a rock in the middle of the ocean. And it's really wonderful. It's funny. It's emotional. It's a beautiful book. And it's, it's an absurdist romp about the nature of work and of the nature of wanting to belong to something and to do something that you have, you find meaningful. And it's just a lovely it's short. It's lovely. I just adored it. And I also read recently a children's Bible, which is so funny because I just started talking about <laughs> my children's Bible. A children's Bible by Lydia Millet was a book that came out, I think, in June or May, May maybe. And it's, it's a, similarly to mine, a climate book, but totally different from mine in that it takes place mostly, I think, pretty much in the current day and after a pretty catastrophic storm isolates a portion of New England from everywhere else. And it's what makes it so exciting and interesting and funny, weirdly, is that it's told from the perspective of this group of teenagers who are all like staying with their parents at some and some like lake house for the summer. And their parents are just like, not great parents are really in self-indulgent and the kids take over the book and just lay out the world as they see it. And it's a pretty damning portrait of like the world that they've been left by parents, by older generation who weren't paying attention to what was coming down the pipe. It's a really wonderful book too. Very funny also. These climate change books or these like dystopian future books are all very funny. So have no fear. (laughs) (laughs) Well, where can people find you online if they'd like to learn more about you and your short stories and your novel, The New Wilderness? I have a website. It's dianemariecook.com. I am in the enviable, enviable position or not enviable position of, depending on how you look at social media, of not being on social media. So I abandoned my accounts years ago. So my website is really where you'll find me any information that you want to want to know and any way to contact me too. Great. Again, we've been speaking with Diane Cook, author of the debut novel, The New Wilderness. The novel is available now, so go buy a copy. And Diane, thanks for doing this interview. Thank you so much, Jeff. I really enjoyed it. Great. And now stay tuned for a brief excerpt from the audiobook of The New Wilderness by Diane Cook, performed by Stacy Glimboski and available from Harper Audio, wherever audiobooks are sold. The baby emerged from B, the color of a bruise. B burned the cord somewhere between them and uncoiled it from the girl's slight neck and, though she knew it was useless, swept her daughter up into her hands, tapped on her soft chest, and blew a few shallow breaths into her slimy mouth. Around her, the singular song of crickets expanded. Bee's skin prickled from heat. Sweat dried on her back and face. The sun had crested and would, more quickly than seemed right, fall again. From where Bee knelt, she saw their valley, its secret grasses and sage. In the distance were lonely buttes and, closer, mud mounds that looked like cairns marking the way somewhere. 
the caldera stood sharp and white on the horizon. B dug into the hard earth with a stick, then a stone, then hollowed and smoothed it with her hands. She scooped the placenta into it, then the girl. The hole was shallow, and her baby's belly jutted from it. Wet from birth, the little body held on to coarse sand and tiny golden buds brittled from their stems by the heat of the sun. She sprinkled more dust onto the baby's forehead, pulled from her deer hide bag several wilted green leaves and laid them over the girl. She broke off craggy branches from the surrounding sage, laid them over the distended belly, the absurdly small shoulders. The baby was a misshapen mound of plant green, rust red blood, a dull violet map of veins under wet tissue skin. Now the animals, who had sensed it, were converging. In the sky, a cyclone of buzzards lowered as if to check on the progress, then uplifted on a thermal. She heard the soft tread of coyotes. They wove through the bloomy sage. A mother and three skinny kits appeared under jaggedly thrown shade. Be heard wine's ease from their impassive yawns. They would wait. A wind stirred and she breathed in the dusty heat. She missed the stagnant scent of the hospital room, where she'd given birth to Agnes what must have been eight years ago now. The way the scratchy gown had stretched across her chest and gotten tangled up when she tried to roll to either side. How the cool air blew around her hips, between her legs, where her doctor and nurses stared, prodded, and pulled Agnes from her. She'd hated the feeling, so exposed, used, animal-like. But here, it was all dust and hot air. Here she had needed to guide the small body. Had she been five months pregnant, six, seven? Out with one hand, while with the other, she'd had to block a diving magpie. She had wanted to be alone for this, but what she wouldn't have given for a probing gloved hand, stale recirculated air, humming machines, fresh sheets under her, rather than desert dust. Some sterile comfort. What she wouldn't have given for her mother. Bee hissed at the coyotes. Scram, she said, pitching the dirt and pebbles she'd just dug at them. But they only slid their ears back, the mother sinking to her haunches and the kits nipping at her snout, irritating her. She probably snuck off from the rest of the pack to get her young something extra, or to let them practice scavenging, to practice surviving. It's what mothers did. Be shooed a fly from near the baby's eyes, which at first had looked startled over having not made it, but now seemed accusatory. The truth was, B hadn't wanted the baby, not here. It would have been wrong to bring her into this world. That's what she'd felt all along. But what if the girl had sensed B's dread and died from not being wanted? B choked. This is for the best, she told her. The girl's eyes clouded over with the clouds that rolled overhead. During one night walk, back when she'd had a flashlight and still carried batteries to make it glow, she'd caught two eyes gleaming in her beam. She clapped her hands to scare the eyes, but they just dipped down. The animal was tall but crouching, sitting perhaps, and Bee feared it was stalking her. Her heart sped up, and she waited for the cold dread that she'd felt a couple of times by then, her inner sense of being in danger, but the feeling never came. She walked closer, 
Again, the eyes dipped down, supplicant, like a dog obeying, but it was not a dog. She had to get closer before she could see that it was a deer, with its sloped back, the peaked ears, the resigned flick of the tail. Then B saw another eye in the light, small, not looking at her, but quivering, unsteady. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done.